Hello, Christ Church. Pastor Jonathan here. Uh, as I look past the camera and I see the empty building around me, it uh, makes me realize how much I miss you all. I miss uh, our time together. I pray for you. I pray that you are doing well during this time of isolation and separation. And I pray that the Lord would comfort you. And I look forward to the time where we will all be back together in this building. Uh, but until that time, we are going to continue to deliver Sunday morning to the homes of our members and the homes of our community. And so we're going to continue today through our passage in John's Gospel. But before I get there, I want to make a mention of the children because we're still asking our children to take notes on the sermon and send those notes to us. Several children did this week. I got notes from several, including uh, Emma Bender. She sent in a nice note with a picture and some, some uh, words from the sermon. Uh, the three Keel children, you three sent in your notes. I don't feel like I can brag on you because you're mine, but you did a great job. Uh, we also got notes from two of the Copeland children with no names, but I'm guessing it was Jane and Alice. And in getting the notes, we got an email from the Clausen family. And I was a little thrown off at first because I saw three different notes sent in, but I know the Clausens only have two children. So Isaac and Levi, thank you for sending in your notes. And when I looked a little deeper and I looked a little closer, I saw that Ryan Clausen has also sent in his notes. So thank you, Ryan, for participating. Uh, I would encourage you, uh, as you listen to the sermon, as you take notes, especially if you are a child, feel free to send those in. Send them to admin at Christ Church Bellingham. I would love to hear your feedback. I'd love to hear if the Lord has shown you anything from his word this morning. Uh, one other brief update I'd like to mention is uh, right now our elders are working on an announcement regarding our giving and uh, as you might expect in this time of financial insecurity, our giving is down a bit. And we sent out a note to some leaders in the church about some of the changes that we're going to make to our budget. And we got a note back from one of our members. And I wanted to tell you about it as it was a massive encouragement to me. And I hope it will be for you as well. But one of our members sent a note in uh, expressing the concern, thanking the leadership for the steps that they're taking to lead our church during this time. And in that note, this member said that they are going to be doubling their giving to help with our budget shortfall. And that was a tremendous blessing to hear about. And it was actually an encouragement for me and Corey for us to consider how we might give joyfully and sacrificially and maybe even give more in this moment, in this, this crisis that we're going through to show that we trust the Lord and to show our thankfulness at all that he has done for us. And so thank you, member. You know who you are. We appreciate it. It's been an encouragement to me. And I hope it's an encouragement for the rest of our community. Okay, so now let's turn our attention to the passage this morning. Our reading today comes from John chapter 11. We're continuing through our series of John, but we're doing something a little different. We have actually jumped ahead just one passage. So this Sunday is Palm Sunday, and next Sunday is Easter. And so next Sunday, Nate is going to cover the, the section in John chapter 11 where Lazarus is raised from the dead. But today we're looking at verses 45 through 57, the section just after that. So just after Jesus raises Lazarus. And here we have um, the story given to us that is immediately after that on Palm Sunday. So 
Hear now the word of God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that, that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem to pass a, to, to, before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our eyes, to our path. We pray this morning that you would use your word to enlighten our eyes, to lead us in your truth, that we might walk in your ways. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned, this passage, with this passage, we're picking up our series through John's gospel. And this passage comes right after Lazarus is raised from the dead by Jesus. And this is just before the last week of Jesus' life. And like so many passages in John's Gospel, this passage seems to turn on interesting use of language. Now you may remember that John is constantly playing with language. It's one of the reasons that we love his gospel so much. It's one of the reasons that several people will say that John is their favorite book in the whole Bible because he's poetic and he uses interesting language to get his point across. And there are at least two distinct ways that I think this gospel, this passage, uses intentional wordplay to shape its message and its meaning. And the first is a word pair. And you have heard me say before, possibly, that John loves word pairs. And he especially loves these, these word pairs of two contrasting, almost opposite things that work together. You know, you might think of them as dichotomies, and he uses them to get his point across. So there's dichotomies like light and dark. There's the word pair of heaven and earth, the word pair of above and below. John is constantly using two opposites to, set, to, to get his point across. And this math, passage, we see one of those in the very opening text. So in verses 45, or in verse 45, 
John writes that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. And I think what Jesus is doing, because he uses the word a little bit later on, is he's using the echo of the word pair between belief and unbelief. John is setting up this passage as a conflict between belief and unbelief. One group of people was with Jesus and they saw him raise Lazarus and they believe in him. And another group of people was also with Jesus. They also saw him raise Lazarus from the dead and they run away and run to his adversaries. This is a conflict between those who believe and those who don't. And the rest of the passage is from the perspective of that second group. John is actually giving us insight into that group who don't believe. And in a way, you can think of today's sermon as a different type of Palm Sunday sermon. You know, usually Palm Sunday, this is the day where we think of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and he comes into the crowds and they wave palm branches and they lay them down at his feet as he rides in on a donkey as a conquering king coming into his kingdom. Well, today we get to consider what Palm Sunday looks like from the other perspective. That was the perspective. The parade is the perspective of those who believe. This is the perspective of those who don't. We get to look at it from Jesus' enemy's perspective, and we get a close-up on those who don't believe. But there's a second and potentially even more important wordplay going on in this passage. In fact, I think, I think the whole passage turns on essentially one word. And in verse 53, after the chief, chief priests and the Pharisees confer, John tells us, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You know, at first, that seems like a pretty straightforward statement. And I'll admit that I missed this wordplay until I used my phone a friend option and I called our Christchurch resident Gospel of John expert, John Schwant, and we were talking about this passage and he pointed out to me, he said, oh, isn't this interesting? That word in 53, the first word, so in your ESV Bible, which is also translated as therefore, it's doing this double duty. What's it referring to? It could be referring to what Caiaphas had just done in his promptings and his selfish desires to keep their place in their nation. Or is, it, is, it, is the reason that Jesus, they make plans to put him to death, was it because God is going to gather his children into one? Again, John has set up conflicting interests. This is a cosmic battle between those who believe and those who don't. Conflict between Jesus' enemies, their selfish desires, and God's purposes. And the amazing, seemingly preposterous good news of Jesus Christ is that I think the answer is both. It was not one or the other. Jesus dies because of man's sinfulness. And Jesus dies because of God's merciful, intentional plan. And so those are the two main points that we'll look at for the rest of our time today. Man's sin and God's plan. And by looking at man's sin and God's plan, we will see both the tragedy and the beauty of Palm Sunday. So first, notice man's sin in this passage. 
when I first started working on this sermon, this perspective, it, it really colored my, my whole, uh, all of my work, and I thought that's what this was about, right? From the beginning to the end, this passage is about Jesus' adversaries. It starts with that group who, who saw what Jesus did and should have recognized him as the author of life, running away to, to go find his enemies. And then you see the, the plan, the, the conference of what they're going to do to push him out. And then it ends in this ominous, uh, you know, where, ominous passage where people are standing around just before the Passover and they don't know what's going on, but the, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders are looking to arrest Jesus. This whole passage is about uh, from the perspective of man's sin in a way. This is not your typical triumphal entry view of Jesus. So what do we learn when we look at the darker side of the story? Well, I'd like to make two observations. This passage teaches us both about a motivation for sin, and it teaches us about a consequence of sin. Now keep in mind, these are not comprehensive statements about what sin is. Rather, these are two specific truths that John has highlighted in this passage to help us understand at least a portion of why Jesus went to the cross. So our first observation, observation, notice that fear is a motivation for sin, right? Fear is what's driving Jesus' adversaries here. In the passage, fear is the implicit motivation behind the chief priest and the Pharisees. You see this specifically in verses 47 and 48. John says, So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're afraid that if Jesus keeps doing what he's doing, then they're going to lose their place. They're going to lose their nation. Really, probably more importantly, they're afraid they're going to lose their power. The fear of the Jewish leaders is part of what has blinded them from seeing who Jesus is. Their fear has pitted them against Jesus. This fear is a motivation for their sin. But I want to make an important caveat here. John and the rest of the Bible is not saying that the emotion of fear is in itself sinful. I'm sure many of you at home, like me, have experienced plenty of fear lately. In light of the coronavirus and the the global pandemic, a pandemic that's reaching all across our world, and it's many implications that we are already seeing here in Bellingham that can raise a lot of fear in us. So I'm not saying that the experience of fear is wrong. The difference here is the direction or the orientation of that fear. And I think the book of Proverbs is a helpful illustration here. If you look at the book of Proverbs, you look for the word fear, you'll find it 17 times. 16 of those times, it's actually used positively. And I'm sure many of you are are well aware with two of perhaps the most recognizable of those instances, where you have Proverbs telling us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or in Proverbs 1, a similar saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, in the book of Proverbs, fear is mostly positive, for fear of the Lord has so many benefits. It prolongs life, 
It provides knowledge and wisdom, like I mentioned. It leads to life and rewards to the one who possesses it. So fear in of itself isn't wrong. But you might not have known what that one negative use of fear is in the book of Proverbs. And that comes in Proverbs 29, 25, which says, the fear of man lays a snare. So the issue is not fear itself, but the direction or the inclination of that fear. In our passage today, Jesus' enemies were afraid of man. They were afraid that the Romans would come and take away their place in their nation. And that passage, that idea is a warning to us against that type of fear. We need not fear man. We can turn to the Lord and trust in him and take our fears to him, trusting in him and trusting in his plan. Because if we don't, if we, if we continue in that fearful man, what we might allow is we might allow our sinful motivations to become actions. Or said in another way, as James would say it, when desire conceives and gives birth to sin, when we allow those sinful desires to give birth to sin, those actions have consequences. And that's the second observation on our, from sin from this passage this morning, is that sin has consequences. In verse 53, Jesus' enemies resolve to put Jesus to death. And so what does Jesus do? He leaves. In verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked about op openly among them, among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And from there he stayed with the disciple, the disciples. Think about what Jesus had just done for his people. This is the man who had just fed thousands of people he had healed the sick. He'd given sight to the blind. He had made the lame walk. And he just previously, just before this passage, he had just raised a man from the dead. And this is the man that they are asking to leave. Isn't this the very man you'd want to be around? But because of the sin of the chief priest and the Pharisees, the enemies of God, because of their hardness of heart towards Jesus, their fear of losing control. Jesus leaves them and he takes his blessing and goodness with him for a time. This truth is repeated several times throughout the Bible. Uh, often God's, God allows us to experience the consequences of what we ask for. Notice Jesus' enemies want him gone, so for a while he goes. And God often grants the request of those who believe in him and those who don't. He grants both requests. You know, here the Pharisees don't want Jesus, so for a time he leaves. And sometimes it's like that for us. Here in the Gospel of John, Jesus is temporarily giving those who don't believe the consequences of their desires. Perhaps the, the clearest explanation of this in Scripture is in Romans 1, 24 and following, where, God, where Paul says that God gives the ungodly up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to dishonorable passions, and to those who receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. In a similar vein, here in John 11, the Jewish leaders want Jesus gone and he goes. 
I'm reminded of the C.S. Lewis quote from The Great Divorce where he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. But this passage isn't only about those who would reject Jesus. While it does come from that perspective, it shows the perspective of Jesus' enemies. It's actually written so that you and I might believe. And so you see this conflict between these two groups, the conflict between those who believe and those who don't. And even when Jesus leaves in verse 54, you see the hope of belief because Jesus takes his disciples with him, the ones who believe in him. And in doing so, we see that God has had a plan all along. In fact, as a part of his plan, God's plan is the answer to man's sin. And that's our second point for today. And perhaps the most amazing, paradoxical, and wonderful part of this story is that God's plan is the very thing that deals with our sin. So while, Ca while Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders were planning Jesus' death for their own sinful and selfish, fearful purposes, God was using it for his glory. Notice the irony in what Caiaphas says in verse 41. When he stands up and he says, you know nothing at all. And yet he, the very person proclaiming that, proclaiming that you know nothing at all, is the one who has no idea what he's talking about. Because Caiaphas, as John says, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God is using Caiaphas in spite of his ignorance, in spite of his fear, and in spite of his direct opposition to Jesus. God is using him as part of his plan. And so don't miss the grace of God's plan. God's enemies are afraid. They don't believe, even after seeing a man raised from the dead, and they contrive and conspire to destroy the very author of life. And these are the plans that God uses to gather his children into one. It's breathtaking. Think about what this truth means for you and for me and for our relationship at God, with God. At the very least, brothers and sisters, know that your sin cannot thwart the purposes of God. No matter what you have done, no matter what you will do. Yes, sin can be a barrier for our experience of God, and he will often allow us to deal with the consequences of our, our sin and of our actions. But our sin cannot stop the God of the universe from fulfilling what he has said he will do. And so what are his purposes? What is that plan? Well, I've already mentioned it, but John tells us specifically in verses 51 and 52, God has planned that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God's plan is that he would fulfill Caiaphas' wish, but in a completely and an immensely more wonderful way. Jesus is going to die for the nation, but not in the way his enemies expect. And when we think of this incredible good news in the context of this passage, in the context of belief and unbelief, 
and God working good through evil intentions, we find another paradox, a seemingly unbelievable truth of Jesus. Right? So think about the two groups that John has portrayed, those who believe and those who don't. Often, when we read scripture, we ask ourselves, which of these characters should we identify with? You know, which is it here? Which do we identify with? Are we watching the triumphal entry from the parades, waving the palm branches and shouting hosannas and welcoming the king as one who believes? Or are we conspiring with the enemies and with the Pharisees and with Caiaphas to send Jesus to his death? The paradox and the wonder of the gospel is that on one level, we have experienced both. Not only is there someone who's potentially listening to this message who identifies as one who doesn't believe, but me and you, we all at one point were far off from the Lord. It was my sin that took Jesus to the cross. I am one who stood among the mockers and cried out. Or in the Apostles Paul's words, we who were once far off and dead in our trespasses and sin. At some level, I was the Pharisee intent on pushing the way, pushing Jesus away. But God's plan is a plan of mercy. The very thing that we have intended to use for evil, God has used for good. And as part of his plan, God's mercy extends even towards those who would oppose him. The scandal of the gospel and the good news of this passage, the good news of Palm Sunday, is that though we were far off, God has gathered us into one. Though we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with him. He has redeemed our sin. He removes our fear and gives us the ability to fear God and not man and he offers us new life in his name. This is God's plan. To overcome evil with good and deal once and for all with our fear and our sin and to gather us together. Because remember how John has started this passage, we are two groups, the believers and those who believe, sorry, those who believe and those who don't. But he also writes this book with a very specific purpose in mind. In chapter 20, John tells us that he has written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That is the Palm Sunday message. Believe in him. Take your fears to him and trust in his merciful plan for you. Please pray with me. Lord, would you give us this type of faith in you? Remove our fears. Remove any selfish barriers we might have so that we might believe in you. Strengthen our faith and let us experience your kindness and your mercy in Christ who gave himself so that we might be gathered in to your family. We praise you for that good news this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.